It's Friday, April 19th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. It's finally here. The redacted version of the Mueller report has been released. It is broken up into two volumes and totals 448 pages. First, on the question as to whether the Trump campaign had colluded with Russia, the investigation identified numerous links between individuals with ties to the Russian government and individuals associated with the Trump campaign. But there was not enough evidence to bring criminal charges. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to break it all down. Next, we continue our conversation with Ginger to discuss the question of obstruction of justice. The report details 10 instances of possible obstruction where the president tried to seize control of the Russia probe and force the removal of Robert Mueller. But no determination was made, leaving it open for Congress to decide. In many cases, Trump was saved from more legal jeopardy by his staffers, who refused to comply with his requests. Finally, the Mueller report provides us with some intimate scenes from inside the White House. My producer Miranda joins us to talk about how the president felt when he first heard that Mueller was appointed special counsel, a tense meeting between the president and White House counsel Don McGahn, and how long the president held on to former Attorney General Jeff Sessions' resignation letter. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. As the special counsel report makes clear, the Russian government sought to interfere in our election process. But thanks to the special counsel's thorough investigation, we now know that the Russian operatives who perpetrated these schemes did not have the cooperation of President Trump or the Trump campaign. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Well, we finally, finally have the redacted version of the Mueller report. It's two volumes. It's 448 pages long. This counts all of the appendices and, and everything else that's all rolled into it. Lots of stuff to get in there. There was a lot less redactions than people originally thought were going to be in there. The president and his legal team have called this a total victory. We have a little clip of the president obviously enjoying a lot of this so far. I'm having a good day, too. It was called no collusion, no obstruction. <laughs> While the president's having a good day with it, I mean, it's really off to the races, as we've been saying, the spin and really looking for any little detail to, uh, you know, just to paint the, the president in a bad light or for his supporters, you know, claiming this total victory. Uh, just off the top, any major revelations that we found out or, or top uh, observations? This is an unprecedented look inside an administration while they're still in office. Rarely do you get this type of of detail about a president and the actions they were taking, the meetings and conversations they were holding. And, and this was just a bevy of that kind of information. You're right, he is declaring no collusion, but I have to say that this probably is not as rosy a depiction of his administration that he would have liked to see released. For starters, Mueller goes into great detail about how his son, Don Jr., was communicating with WikiLeaks during the campaign, was receiving receiving messages from WikiLeaks on Twitter, to which he was responding, at one point received a password to a website and used it to log into the website, a website that was critical of then-candidate Trump. Those are some interesting details about those conversations. And then in the aftermath and the fallout that he tried repeatedly to get Don McGahn to fire Robert Mueller, and that uh, McGahn just ignored him, that he was upset about the naming 
of Mueller to be the special counsel, used an explicative, I won't repeat on a podcast, but also said, you know, this was the end of his presidency to have Mueller put into that role. Right. I mean, there's so much really involved in this. And and as the report separated things into two volumes, stuff related to Russia and uh, collusion and then obstruction of justice, we'll kind of start there. Here's William Barr from his press conference saying that bottom line, there was no collusion. After nearly two years of investigation, thousands of subpoenas, hundreds of warrants and witness interviews, the special counsel confirmed that the Russian government sponsored efforts to illegally interfere with the 2016 presidential election, but did not find that the Trump campaign or other Americans colluded in those efforts. And while he said that there were instances, nine people who were involved with the Trump campaign that did have contacts with Russians. And as you were just saying briefly before, there is some murky territory there. A lot of it really hinders on that. Russia did decide that they would benefit from a Trump presidency. The Trump campaign knew that they would benefit from things that were leaked out or released by them, but there was no actual coordination between them. We also see that Barr in his press conference asserted that the Russians had broken U.S. law and hacking into these emails and that then they had given them to WikiLeaks, but that it wasn't a crime to assist in the publication of said emails if you weren't involved in the hacking. And so that seemed to be where folks like Don Jr. under Barr's argument were were relieved of liability, that because he didn't hack, that his conversations with WikiLeaks and his discussing the releasing of these emails were not a crime. The real risk for Trump here, though, is that to some people, that's going to look a little unsavory. And he's going to face a lot of criticism from his political opponents that his son was talking to an outfit that was illegally or legally releasing hacked emails. Yeah, he just didn't know that what he was doing was wrong there. The other one that was interesting is we all know the president in one of his uh, public statements said, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find those 30,000 emails that are missing within about five hours that GRU officers were already targeting Clinton's personal office for the first time at that point. And Trump was actively asking people in his campaign to find the emails, uh, notably Michael Flynn, who then called some people that were trying to find the emails already. So he was actively searching for some of the emails, but there was no overall coordination with Russian officials. I think it's also important to note that Mueller points out that collusion is not a legal term, that he's not assessing collusion because there is no crime of collusion. And so, yes, we see the president asking essentially in a very public way for the Russians to find these emails. We then learned in the report that he was asking repeatedly his staff to go find someone to find these emails and that the Russians were trying to comply. But that collusion is not a crime and it's not a thing that was happening there. Let's move on to the second part of the report, which is the obstruction of justice angle. A lot of people, I've seen a lot of criticisms about why Robert Mueller did not make a decision on obstruction of justice. And first and foremost, everybody says that there's this longstanding rule, basically, that you cannot indict a sitting president. And right from the beginning, the whole report was written with that in mind, that he was never going to make a determination because he was never going to indict the president. And that he thought that this was a question to be answered by Congress. A lot of the response that we've seen to the report in the immediate aftermath is that Barr seemed to characterize Mueller's finding as, as an exoneration of the president, that he hadn't engaged in any obstruction, whereas other 
Mueller say upon reading the report itself that Mueller did no such thing and instead was saying that Congress instead should be evaluating the details of what happened and making that determination. It isn't his role to make that determination. So I I think that there's just a real growing criticism of how Barr handled that, that Barr's assertion that there was no obstruction seemed to gloss over what was actually in, in the report. There were 10 different episodes of potential obstruction of justice for the president. And in a lot of these, it seemed like, yes, he very much was trying to shut down the investigation or fire somebody with regards to the investigation. But the people he was directing to do this decided not to do it, not to follow through. They didn't want to do it. Uh, Don McGahn was one of them. He was ready to resign because Trump was asking him to do something he didn't want to do. And on a lot of these occasions, it seems like his staffers really saved the president from uh, completing the, the whole thing of obstruction. They, they didn't want to do it, so there was no follow-through there. It is remarkable when you think about it, a kind of a step back, that the president was doing these things. They were asking his staff to do these things, and they were just ignoring him. Yeah. And they were refusing to take the actions, which ultimately might have left the president more culpable to charges of obstructing justice. And when you think about it in that way, it's pretty remarkable. Here's William Barr talking about how the president was just so frustrated and angered by the whole report. There is substantial evidence to show that the president was frustrated and angered by his sincere belief that the investigation was undermining his presidency, propelled by his political opponents, and fueled by illegal leaks. This goes to the point of he was so emotional about this whole thing that he was trying to get everything shut down. And and it really caught, you know, everybody's obviously been following the administration. We hear there's, uh, you know, trouble between uh, John Kelly, there's trouble between Don McGahn, there's trouble with all sorts of the president's staffers because he was trying to get them to do a lot of things they didn't want to do. And Jeff Sessions was all rolled up into this as well. He was trying to get him to unrecuse himself and uh, then try to get other people to fire him. You know, it's just a whole circle of the president trying to get things done. And as you said, nobody paying attention to him. And Mueller talks about this at several places in his report, which is that to find the president or the president's son or members of the president's campaign guilty of some of the things that have been alleged against them, you would need to prove intent. And as Barr said, there was a question about whether or not Trump willfully intended to obstruct justice. And his argument is that he was just so mad about the whole thing, (laughs) that his emotions were just so overwhelming that that means he didn't have sort of criminal intent. I suspect we're going to hear from Democrats that emotions do not justify the actions. Maybe, maybe not. But we are dealing with accusations that do involve questions of intent. And that was Barr's point, that it wasn't that he was intending to do something criminal. It was that he was just really angry and then and really upset about what was going on. But if those aides had followed through, then it could have amounted to obstruction, which is You know, it's just that super thin line that really saves the president there. And that's seemingly I'm assuming that's why Robert Mueller said that the report does not exonerate him because there are these ambiguities there. One of the other biggest victories for Trump in this whole thing during the probe was that he didn't sit down for a one on one interview with Mueller or his team. He just submitted written answers. And 
throughout those written answers, there was over a dozen times where the president responded, I don't know, or I don't remember, I don't recall. So he kind of got away with a lot of things there where the Mueller team could not follow up with questions to probe a little deeper and see if they could catch him in something. It's not uncommon in even verbal depositions or or questioning to have someone be told by their lawyers to say, I don't know, I don't recall, in any instance where they don't know the exact answer. This is is advised to avoid being accused of lying if your recollection is a little fuzzy. But you're right, we will never see uh, what would have happened if instead of, of having probably his attorneys write the answers down for him, we had seen Mueller, one of his team members, actually get to question the president himself. And now, as we always do when we have to dissect these huge things, the big picture, what is the bottom line with this? Democrats want Mueller to testify. I mean, I don't know how much he's going to say more than what's already in the reports uh, that we have uh, that's out now. Republicans and the president's supporters are claiming victory. Democrats want to continue to nail the president. What are we going to do with all of this now? Well, I don't think we're putting it to bed. I think this is going to be something we're talking about for a little bit longer. You're right. The Hill wants to have hearings. Critics of the president think that hearings are the key to sort of solidifying or galvanizing opposition to the president when people actually hear some of the things that are written in the report. The big question is, are we talking about this a year from now? If it seems to put it to bed, if this is the end of new revelations, it may be something that that is no longer registering as much on folks' radars come election day 2020. But if we're still talking about this as in the lead up to the 2020 election, this will have been a very bad day for the Trump presidency. And how does William Barr fare in all this because Democrats are saying that he basically mischaracterized the Mueller report with his four page summary that he initially put out. I got to say, from a political standpoint, the Democrats are losing when they're arguing about process instead of the substance of the report. And we saw a shift in the day after the report came out. The first sort of criticism from Democrats was about Barr and about his process that has shifted a bit and become much more about Trump and Trump's actions. If they have Trump to talk about, they're probably going to spend more time and resources on that. But undoubtedly, we will see quite a bit more criticism from Democrats about Barr and the role that he's played. It does seem that this is the biggest victory for the president. I would not declare the president yet the winner. I think that we need to see how this shakes out. We need to see how people respond. We need to see what happens when people have time to read it. There are optics at play here, and the president is the king of optics, and he's trying very hard to make the optics go in his favor. But there is some risk here for him, and it's to be seen how those risks get process. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. If it's time for a new job, it's time to get to know Express. Your local employment experts, Express Employment Professionals is ready to help. Apply on the Express Jobs app or at expresspros.com. Express offers good paying jobs and administrative roles, including customer service, sales, and accounting positions, as well as skilled labor jobs like machinists, forklift operators, welders, and CNC programmers. If you need a new full-time or summer job, Express can help. Express has even received the Talent Satisfaction Award from Best of Staffing. Apply now at expresspros.com or call your local office. You can even complete your application over the phone. Express knows jobs and it's time to get to know Express. An Express associate said, Everyone at Express is supportive and they went out of their way to place me in a job. I greatly appreciate Express. 
When you apply for a job, you need a callback and a chance to interview. Let your local Express employment specialist help you. Job seekers never pay a fee at Express, and Express has thousands of open positions. Land a new job now with Express Employment Professionals. There is substantial evidence to show that the president was frustrated and angered by his sincere belief that the investigation was undermining his presidency, propelled by his political opponents, and fueled by illegal leaks. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. We're going to be talking more about the special counsel report that was made available. The report builds on dozens of interviews, notes, communications, and it pieces together what was happening inside President Donald Trump's White House. And it gives us some intimate scenes of what was going on there. First and foremost, the one you probably heard a lot about is how the president reacted when he heard that Robert Mueller was named the special counsel. What happened there, Miranda? He kind of had a meltdown. Yeah, I think it's fair to say Attorney General Jeff Sessions broke the news to Trump on May 17th, 2017, that Rod Rosenstein had appointed Robert Mueller to be the special counsel. Sessions was with Trump in the Oval Office and they were conducting interviews for a new FBI director. But he stepped outside to get that news to deliver to Trump. And when he came in and told him, Trump just slumped down in his chair. He like all the air went out of the room. He was like very visibly physically defeated. And all he says is, oh, my God, this is terrible. This is the end of my presidency. I'm fucked. Yeah. And it's interesting to note that at that moment, he thought, you don't know what's in his head. Maybe he thought, oh, man, I've been had or really where he goes on to say is that he thinks that this is just going to make him completely ineffective, basically. Yeah, he yells at Sessions. He quickly turns to anger and says, you were supposed to protect me. And then he again bemoaned this fallout of a special counsel. And he says, everyone tells me if you get one of these independent counsels, it ruins your presidency. It takes years and years. I won't be able to do anything. This is the worst thing that has ever happened to me. Yeah. Another tense meeting that happened was in the Oval Office after he, uh, Chief of Staff John Kelly was trying to smooth things over between the president and his White House counsel, Don McGahn. Don McGahn was on the brink of resigning when he said that President Trump told him to get rid of special counsel Robert Mueller. Yeah. And then Trump was angry because the New York Times and the Washington Post had each written articles about McGahn's refusal to fire Mueller. So Trump fires back and says, I never said to fire Mueller. That's how he started this meeting. Very combative. This exchange is really funny. It's all semantics. He goes, I never said fire. This story doesn't look good. You need to correct this. You're the White House counsel. And he's just arguing semantics (laughs) and details with him. He said, what you said is call Rod Rosenstein. Tell Rod that Mueller has conflicts and that he can't be special counsel. That he recalls the president saying, I never said that. (laughs) And then one of the other main ones was what happened with Attorney General Jeff Sessions at that time. We all know how angry he was with him for recusing himself. He needed an ally there. So this other story comes from how the president was handling Jeff Sessions when he wanted to resign. Jeff Sessions had given the president his resignation letter, even though that smoothed over, he decided to stay on for a lot longer. But the president kind of held that resignation letter. They said they were holding it over the Justice Department. Yeah, weirdly. So we know Jeff Sessions didn't end up leaving the administration until after the midterm elections in 2018. But as early as May 2017, Trump was flying from Saudi Arabia to Tel Aviv and he reached in his pocket and he pulled out the resignation letter that had been written two days earlier. He's showing it off to senior aides, including Hope Hicks, who was the one who gave this interview to the Mueller team. 
And that's an important note, too. Hope Hicks was responsible for a lot of the stories that were told to Mueller. Apparently, Sessions had delivered this letter to Trump the day before. Trump and the attorney general determined he'd remain in the job, as we know. But Steve Bannon and Reince Priebus were concerned that Trump was kind of holding on to this letter to use it as leverage against the Justice Department, basically that he could make it public and fire Jeff Sessions at any time without any notice. Two aides decided that they wanted to get this letter back. They didn't want him to have it anymore. So when Ryan Priebus approached the president on the Middle East trip and asked him to turn it over, the president said, oh, I don't have it with me. Uh, I think I might have left it at the White House residence. And it would take another 10 days, three days after the president returned from his trip for the president to finally turn that thing over. So What a character. I know. It's just some in- crazy little stories that you get, all the behind the scenes that happen throughout this whole two-year process that the Mueller probe was really going on. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.